1: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Doug Crabtree. Doug and his wife, Anna Jones Crabtree, own and operate Villicus Farms, a nationally recognized organic dryland crop farm in Northern Hill County, Montana, just north of Hover, Montana, up close to the Canadian border. They grow a diverse variety of organic heirloom crops, about 12 to 15 crops annually, in a five-year rotation that includes grains, legumes, broad leaves, pulses, and oilseeds. And our conversation is extremely timely because this year, 2016, is the international year of pulses, and so we're going to be talking to a pulse farmer. Doug and Anna are champions of organic agriculture and are committed to modeling agricultural land stewardship at a scale that matters and to developing a community of like-minded farmers who share their mission. Their story was recently featured in Lentil Underground, Renegade Farmers and the Future of Food in America by Liz Carlyle. Doug and Anna launched a beginning organic farmer apprenticeship program in 2013 to support the establishment of new farmers in the northern Great Plains. And since 2009, Villicus Farms has grown from a 1,280-acre organic farm to a 4,700-acre organic farming operation that is cultivating a conservation-based ethic for sustainable food production and stewarding beginning farmers in Montana's northern Great Plains. Doug holds a Masters of Science degree in Plant Science from South Dakota State University and a BS in Agricultural Economics from Purdue. He has served as the Organic Certification Program Manager for the Montana Department of Agriculture and he has worked as an organic inspector, educator, researcher, farm manager, and farmer. In 2014, he and Anna were recipients of the Organic Trade Association's Farmer of the Year. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. It's a long introduction, but I couldn't leave out any of it because the work that you're doing is really exceptional.
0: Oh, thank you. I I definitely couldn't have said it any better myself.
1: Well, you know, I should let our listeners know that we actually met because we both served on the Organic Farming Research Foundation board together. And that's really where I learned about the exceptional nature of your farm and why I wanted to have you on. So we should probably start by just asking you, you know, what is a dry land crop farm?
0: Well, in simplest terms, that, that means that we are supplied with moisture uh, only by rain as opposed to an irrigated operation. So uh, we have no access to water other than what comes from the sky, what nature provides us. And that's one of our challenges We've had two particularly dry years in a row in 2014 and 15, and uh, we are uh, a bit bruised from that.
1: Mm-hmm. And with climate change, what are the predictions for your region?
0: Well, I think the one prediction that we've seen that's absolutely true of climate change is whatever the, uh, the average or the trend, there are going to be much greater and more violent and extreme um, variations That make up that average. Mm -hmm. So we are very continental. We're sort of in the middle of a a North American landmass, if you will. And from all that I can read and have studied, we should fare well compared to most other areas. You know, I I would be very troubled if I were on a coast somewhere. But here, the impact will be moderated, as I understand. But Mm -hmm. that said, our climate normal whatever that means these days is very much on the edge of desert you know, we are a semi-arid region and so if we deviate downward in precipitation or upward in temperature by a relatively small amount then we can be to the point where crops will not produce mm-hmm. so that's been part of our challenge the last couple of years is we've trended down and we don't have much room to spare on that side
1: yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm sitting here with the United Nations 2016 International Year of Pulses. There's a brochure that I picked up at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting because dietitians promote more consumption. Now with the new dietary guidelines, of course, there's even a greater emphasis on increasing plant foods, grains, whole grains, and pulses. And in this particular brochure, it says that It takes 43 gallons of water to produce one pound of pulses, so you're extremely water efficient, and it takes, in comparison, 1,857 gallons of water to produce one pound of beef. So these crops are certainly drought tolerant, they are frost-hardy, which is good for your region, and they're absolutely nutritious. So... We should probably explain what pulse crops are, right? First and foremost.
0: Sure. Well, my uh, simplest definition is: pulses are edible legumes. And perhaps to make go one step further, a legume is a plant that has a symbiotic relationship with a soil bacteria that allows the fixation of atmospheric nitrogen into plant available nitrogen, not only for the current the legume itself, but for subsequent plants. So uh, that is one of the great miracles of nature, Mm -hmm. that we are able to grow these pulse or legume crops and provide uh, their own nitrogen and enrich the soil with nitrogen to benefit subsequent crops.
1: Yeah, so you don't need to add fertilizer.
0: Not nitrogen, it is uh, absolutely unnecessary. For us, and I would uh, be so bold as to suggest for any farmer to utilize synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. Mm -hmm. It's a systems problem if they are.
1: Well, you know, that's interesting because my next question to you was going to center on your decision to choose organic farming. And I know that you grew up in Ohio and you ended up in this totally different geographical region of the country. And you probably, my guess, would be that Organic agriculture wasn't promoted at Purdue University when you were there or at South Dakota State University. What led you down that path and to go not only organic but to farm in these Northern Plains regions?
0: Well, that's a mouthful. I know. uh, I'll try to start at the top. Uh, We chose to farm organically. I think in simplest terms, because it's the only way we thought it was possible to start farming and to make a living farming, and at the same time, it's the only way that was morally or ethically acceptable to us. And I don't want to make any aspirations on behalf of others, but for Anna and I, it is not acceptable to grow food using poison. So that's one of our fundamental concepts. And... To a more practical sense, there's no way I could make a spreadsheet that would show how to purchase land, uh, purchase machinery, start a farm from scratch, and in any reasonable lifetime be able to either earn a living or pay for any of the assets necessary to, to become a farmer or a farm business, other than with organic.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's look at then your transition from what you knew growing up in Ohio to now being in the northern Great Plains. What led you to that part of the country?
0: Well, as as you uh, alluded to in, in my honorable introduction, I spent 20-plus years in between farming, if you will, and during that time we sort of progressively moved west for Various reasons, but one of them was seeking a place where there was land affordable enough that, that one could purchase it and start farming and have some hope of paying for it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we like the West. We like the wide open spaces, the lower population, the drier climate, uh, all of those things. But there is also the economic reality that this was a place that we grew to love, but also that we saw as uh, reasonable to think one could start farming and make a living at it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, compared to your neighbors, I think there was an interview with you that I saw online where you, you mentioned that if somebody were to be flying over your property or your region of the country, that your farm would stand out because it looks different. What makes it different?
0: Uh, Well, a number of things. It starts with diversity, and as you mentioned earlier, we we grow 12 to 20 crops in any given year. The typical farm in our region grows one or two. We also, for various reasons but conservation-related, we farm in strips, meaning we have a 240-foot strip of crops and then in between each one we have a 20 or 30 foot strip that we leave in sod or, or seed to native species for conservation, wildlife benefit, pollinators, all of those things that we, we like to preserve as part of our ecosystem. So we have strips in between our strips. We have broad field borders also used for these conservation measures that I speak of and that that makes it stand out visually and of course you know we we are organic so we still within our crop strips are are using tillage we're growing cover crops and green manures and working those in and there's just there's more going on on our farm at any given time than uh, than most of what surrounds us.
1: Yeah well it's interesting because I happen to know that you worked with Eric Motter from the Xerxes Society in promoting more of this biological diversity with native crops. And I wonder if you could describe what you saw as a result of bringing bringing in larger or greater species diversity.
0: Well, I guess I'll, I'll be completely forthcoming. I don't know that we've been at it long enough to see documentable results. What we do know and what we see is that where we have seeded or maintained flowering plants that are beneficial and useful to native pollinators. The field, both the strip that they're in and the surrounding field, is is more active in terms of biology. You, know, you can literally hear the pollinators at work. Wow. Uh, just philosophically, I believe we are obligated to uh, operate as a responsible member of the ecosystem. <laughs> And uh, to make a home for those that uh, could benefit us. A lot of, and I would say as many, if not more, of nature's creatures are of benefit to crop production that are of challenge. And if if you make a place for the good guys, they will help you take care of the ones that are more damaging. So that's not a very scientific answer. I apologize for that. But you know, one of our aims is to emulate nature to the greatest extent we can. And so our strips and our native seedings are part of that effort.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the whole idea of what science is or is not begs a further discussion, probably not one that we have time to get into fully today. But I think that by very nature, the fact that you're such a keen observer makes you a scientist on your farm, and we've had this discussion before. But even the very name of your farm, and I'll let you describe why you chose that one, because there are multiple definitions in Latin for farmer, but why did you choose Villicus?
0: Well, we aspire to stewardship ethic, and that is absolutely central to our philosophy and our motivation to farm we believe that first and foremost we are here to take care of to enhance to to build back if you will the soil and the surrounding ecosystem and so it just made sense to pick this term that you know the literal translation of balikas is a steward of the land and that is what we strive to be here
1: well as a dietitian and someone who cares about public health I greatly appreciate your efforts on your end. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned in to Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Doug Crabtree. He and his wife, Anna Jones Crabtree, own and operate a beautiful, diverse, organic farm in the northern plains of Montana, just up close to the Canadian border, where you grow 12 to 15 crops annually in a five-year rotation. And those crops include all of the ones that... We are recommending in the public health field with our new dietary guidelines, including whole grains, legumes, broad leaves, pulses, and oil seeds. So I want to get back a little bit to your farming practices because I think they're so important to understand. You know, we've had conversations about the public health implications of organic farming and why it's so important not to farm with poisons. I think you summed it up very well there but I want to know what your challenges are to your kind of farming system besides the fact that we're having climate issues and droughts. What else is a challenge for you?
0: Well, you know, one of the, the chief things that we, we find are, you know, nature tends to diversity, and she also is eager to cover herself. So because of those, those tendencies, there are a diversity of plant species that come with, with being part of nature, and uh, those are commonly referred to as weeds. Right. So the plants that we don't want are, are called weeds, and we have we have plenty that we have to manage around and with, and so that can be looked on as as a tremendous challenge to farming organically or farming the way that we do.
1: Mm-hmm. Until we figure out a way to eat those weeds, right?
0: So that can be part of the answer. Yeah. But then they become a crop and there will be others in their place that you don't want. Right. So, you know, one of the challenges is, as I said, nature nature intends to keep herself covered. And if you have a farming system that leaves soil bare, you're fighting nature. And any time that we do that, we see that, that we're fighting nature. So we try to create a system that minimizes bare soil and that maximizes coverage and having something growing on the soil as much of the time as possible. Now, that reasoning flies a bit in the face of sort of recent tradition practice in in this agroecosystem where crop fallow was the more common system, which means for 60 to 65 percent of the time, there was intentionally nothing growing on the soil, or, or either by... Um, mechanical or more recently chemical means, you were trying to assure that there was nothing growing on the soil. Uh, That's the practice of fallow. And so we've we've tried to learn uh, different ways to manage soil moisture and minimize the use of of bare soil and the, the incidence of that in our system.
1: Well, tell me a little bit more about what else you produce there. You do not have livestock, is that correct?
0: Not at this time, though that is an aspiration.
1: It is. Okay, interesting, because, of course, I have a, a vision of the Great Northern Plains, you know, having bison and having livestock there. And I'm curious about your farming practices, where you have a great diversity of plants, but I wondered about the livestock or even animals that might come onto your farm.
0: There are a remarkable number of roaming ungulates on this landscape. There are two different species of deer. There are herds not uncommon to have dozens and not unheard of to have hundreds of uh, pronghorn antelope grazing on fields. Uh, We get elk occasionally, and of course the the smaller mammals as well, but wildlife definitely has a place and a role here, uh, despite human intrusion. Two of the reasons we don't have livestock on our farm in particular are we lack fencing, which is a tremendous investment to install and maintain, and we lack water. There's a general perception that one ranches where it's too dry to farm. In our immediate area, it's actually the opposite, that we farm because there's too little water to grow livestock. Hmm. And. So you can wrap your head around that one for a while, but those would be challenges to our having livestock. It would have to up water sources and uh, pipe them to the appropriate place, and it just takes a lot of investment
1: yeah. to contain.
0: Uh, but I do believe that in the long run, a holistic farm needs to incorporate livestock. We, at the current time, we cooperate with one of our neighbors who has a, a ranching operation and uh We utilize some of his manure and uh, provide some some equipment that that helps him utilize some of it, and uh, he's able to lose what he considers to be a waste, and we're able to gain what we consider to be a a resource Mm -hmm. through that relationship.
1: Yeah, I think those cooperative relationships are really important and that's just the topic really of The Lentil Underground about how you've got this cooperative kind of relationship with your neighboring farmers and I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that.
0: You know, well, the the community that's discussed in in Liz's great book is uh, a little different than most would think about it, you know, our our nearest you know, other organic grower, organic lentil grower, is uh, 75 miles away, approximately. And, you know, in that this country, that's not as far as it is most places. But we still uh, get together and uh, have fellowship, and we share ideas and trade machinery and help each other out. But the distance is a challenge. That said, you know, the focus of the book is that there is this community of sorts that, you know, we're all doing these... Sort of oddball, or uh, we like to think more enlightened practices of, of managing our farms and stewarding the land.
1: Mm-hmm. So, where do you sell your products? You know, how do you get them into the market?
0: We have a number of what we consider to be local processors, and local is within 200 miles in Montana. <laughs> yeah, these are flour mills or uh, pulse crop processors and we sell directly to them they in turn then process into edible products you know sometimes that's as simple as cleaning grading and bagging and sometimes there's grinding and sifting that goes on but not a whole lot of steps between us and the market but there there are a few
1: Mm -hmm. well this is a good year to be promoting the kinds of crops that you're growing are most of your crops sold in the United States, or do they go to Canada, Mexico, global markets? Who are you feeding?
0: Well, all of our crops are sold in in this country. Now, what happens to them beyond our farm gate uh, or beyond the first stop? You know, I happen to know that the Kamut that we sell largely ends up in Italy. Wow. Wow. There are a number of crops that may end up across the northern border eventually, but uh, you know there there is a strong domestic market for organic food, and uh, I think we're part of filling that niche
1: absolutely and you know everywhere I go, whether it's Canada or the u s it doesn't matter what part of the of the country we're talking about. There's always this underlying message that we have a huge demand for organic, and we are not producing enough. So I appreciate the fact that you've started this internship program where you're bringing new potential farmers onto your farm and teaching them how to do this because it kind of makes sense, I think, for American farmers to feed our nation just from a perspective of national food security,
0: Absolutely you know we you know one of our passions and and i is is to not only uh, be a model farm if others care to to watch but but to help create more stewards mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's really the endeavor that we're on here is to to train and equip and then help to incubate uh, new farmers on the land mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's not a uh not an easy task by any means and it's Definitely, still a work in progress, and we're we're seeking partners that uh, that share our vision and want to help. You know, it's going to take a concerted effort because starting a farm is not a uh, not for the light of light of heart or spirit.
1: Absolutely, uh, but we do
0: believe that, that with some help, it can be a an easier and more direct path than what we had.
1: Right. Well, I appreciate the fact that in the Lentil Underground, there's a section of the book that talks about you and Anna in particular, under the subheading of farming is a profession. And you also describe the challenges that you faced in even starting the farm. And I'm sure these are some of the discussions you have with prospective farmers about just getting funding to get the farm started, having access to equipment, having access to loans. If you could change policy, if you could change farm policy to make your vision become the reality, which is certainly in tune with what we would want for public health, what would you do? What would you tweak?
0: Oh, my. Uh, how long do we have yet on the interview? Right?
1: <laughs> Just a few minutes.
0: Um, you know, one of the things I think that could be, could be changed without huge uproar would be, you know, the CRP program, Conservation Reserve Program, that takes land out of production, retires it and is generally used, at least in our region, as a farmer retirement program. Uh, they rent their land to the government and then spend three-fourths of their year in a warmer climate, and the land sits idle. I would like to see that converted to a beginning farmer pool, where that same land is then made available for new or beginning farmers to use to start their businesses. And rather than leaving broad swaths of our countryside idled, let's put it back to work. Uh, crop insurance, just to change topics, is, is an area that is hugely disadvantageous to organic growers or even uh, growers of diverse crops in more general terms. The way those programs are currently structured, there's huge incentive to monoculture, to if you grow the things that are most frequently grown in any given area, the insurance is relatively inexpensive, and you can insure your income. But if you try to diversify and have a more nature modeled system, then your insurance becomes more expensive, which is just a perverse situation that the you know the less risky system in terms of uh, ecosystem is deemed more expensive to insure by our policy. So how do we turn that around? I'm, I'm not sure I have all the answers, but but it needs to be uh, re-examined. Because um, right now, crop insurance is the number one disincentive to diversity and to really sound farming practice in this country.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Doug, our time is up, but... You have such great ideas, and you're doing such revolutionary work on your farm that I hope on your website you will share some of your visions for what would make a a more productive fair system for certainly organic producers. Because you've got a beautiful website, and if people want to learn more, you can go to com. That's V as in Victor, I L I cusfarms.com and I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be my guest it's no surprise that you were 2014 Organic Trade Association Farmer of the Year. We have been speaking with Doug Crabtree who together with his wife Anna Jones Crabtree own and operate Villicus Farms, a nationally recognized organic dry land crop farm in Northern Hill County, Montana. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful Downtown Columbia, Missouri. I think uh, you've inspired me to go out and make a big pot of organic lentil stew. Thank you so much, Doug.
0: Sounds wonderful.
1: Thank you.